Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that's given to us to dwell within us and among us. We thank you that he opens the eyes of our spirits to see who we are in Christ like we've never seen before. We thank you, Father. And we bless your holy name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We want to continue the series that we've been teaching for the last number of weeks on the subject of, uh, subject of faith. So we want to use Mark 11, uh, beginning in verse 22 again. These are the most concise and complete words that Jesus ever spoke on this great subject of faith. The backstory is that Jesus, in the last week of his ministry, his, his days here on the earth, was traveling from Jerusalem to Bethany. It's a, just three or four miles away from what they tell us. And he passed by a fig tree that had leaves on it, which was an indication that it had figs. But it didn't have any figs on it. It was just all leaf and no fruit. So Jesus cursed it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard him say it. And so the next morning as they were going by that same place again, back to Jerusalem, they noticed, the disciples noticed that the fig tree was dried up from the roots. It had suffered a supernatural death overnight. And Peter calling to remembrance said, Master, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. Now there must be an implied question there because Jesus answers and tells them how this event took place. Verse 22, And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. And as we've spoken numerous times, that word in is really the word of. Have the faith of God. And so we coined the phrase, the God kind of faith, because if it was the faith of God, what other kind of faith would God have other than the God kind? So he's telling his disciples not just something he has, but he's instructing them on what they should have as well. Have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things you, soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now folks, I want to create an illustration here, or attempt to at least, to make a point about how the faith of God, the God kind of faith works. So let's use the monetary system here on this world as an example. We know that the world's economy works on money. Money is the currency of the economic system. And there is no limitations to what you and I can have, what anybody could have in this physical realm, in this modern day earth outside of their ability to have the money to do it. For example, there's no limit to the things that you can have or experience. The monetary system works very simply 
And that is that money is the medium of exchange for goods and services. Goods being the things that you and I could have, the possessions we could have here on the earth. Services being the things that other people would do for us in exchange for that currency. For America, it's dollars. For other places, it's different types of currency, perhaps. But it all works the same. And as a result, there is no limit to the amount of goods that we can have. There's no limit to the amount of possessions we can have. There's no limit to the amount of services that we can procure outside of our ability to make the money that it takes to to obtain it. Well, faith is the currency of heaven. Faith is the means of exchange whereby we take and give and put in practice or in, uh, in the spiritual realm, put in circulation this thing that Jesus calls faith to result in whatever possessions or whatever action we need God to provide for us. Now, in the, in the monetary system, if we know how to make money, if we know how money works, then we can procure or increase our money to such a point where the sky's the limit. Well, when Jesus talks about faith, he talks about the impossibilities of life being overcome by faith. We know that the things of the spirit realm are greater than the things of the natural realm because the Bible tells us that everything that was created here in this physical and natural and material world was created by unseen spirit forces called words. The Bible talks about faith being a force, a spiritual force, It talks about it being an issue of your heart, the real man, the spirit man on the inside. So in the same way that our ability to make money is the only limitation on our lives. For example, if we wanted to live the life of a billionaire, all we'd have to do is have the ability to make billions of dollars. Now, I know you're thinking, yeah, that's all. But folks, regardless of the amount, regardless of the size, regardless of what things appear to be, within our grasp, it really comes down to a simple formula. Whatever we have the ability to obtain, we just simply have to have the means of exchange to make that, those goods, those services ours. Well, the Bible goes into great detail to tell us not only what faith is, but how we get faith, how we can increase our faith, and how we can use our faith. And it seems to me that the monetary system of this world is the simplest example to portray the impossibilities or the things that seem to be impossible as it really entirely possible for us to have. As I said in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Then he goes on to tell us why. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So God requires faith of us. And even here in this story in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus answers Peter, when Peter draws his attention back to the fig tree, that was yesterday vibrant, full of life, not full of fruit, but full of life. 
to overnight being a destructive force or having been hit by some destructive force or affected by some destructive force that changed entirely the circumstances of that tree. In the same manner, when Jesus said, have the faith of God, he's telling his disciples what they can do too. This would have been a perfect opportunity for, people, for Jesus to say, yeah, and I'm glad you saw it because now you can know for sure that I'm the Son of God. But he didn't. He didn't magnify himself in this. He didn't even magnify God in this. He magnified the power of this thing called faith to change circumstances in our lives. Now, the Bible says we have a measure of that faith. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 Paul said, for I say through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And the words of himself there are in italics, which means that we, that it, it means the translators added those words. So the important point that's, that uh, Paul is conveying is that we shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we should, ought to think. And that's certainly true. But we shouldn't think of anything more highly than we ought to think. See, a lot of times people think that problems are so big, they're too big for God or too big for their ability to overcome it through faith. Well, that's high-mindedness. To think that anything the devil can do is greater than what God has already done in you. That's high-mindedness. That's thinking too highly of the devil's power and ability. So when the Bible says not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, that's certainly true. But we shouldn't think of anything more highly than we ought to think. Well, if we're not going to do that, what are we going to think? But to think soberly. The word sober comes from a root word that means not moved by emotions. Not moved by emotions. Now, why do people get high-minded about different things the devil brings into their lives? Because of the emotional impact of the circumstance. So he says, don't think more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly, not moved by emotions. According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. It doesn't say a measure of faith. If it said a measure of faith, then we could conclude or wonder, do you have more faith than I do? Do I start at a different level of faith than somebody else does? And so forth. But God starts us all off at the same place. Now this is the faith, the same faith, that Hebrews 11.3 says, we understand that this faith, through this faith, by this faith, the world was created. Everything in this material realm was created by something that could not be seen with a natural or physical eye. Well, how did God create everything? The Genesis account of creation tells us that he said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the waters divide from below the sky to above the sky. He said, during uh, Genesis chapter 1, there are ten different things that God said and it came to pass. So this world, this God kind of faith, just as Jesus emphasizes in verse 23, the spoken word. Read that again with me. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, he puts the emphasis on the word, the spoken word. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So Jesus emphasizes when he's talking about this God kind of faith, 
he emphasizes the spoken word. He doesn't even emphasize the believing in the heart part. He emphasizes the words that are spoken. Well, that's how he created the world. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were created by the word of God. So that the things that do appear were made from things which you cannot see or do not appear. So when Jesus is talking about the spoken word as being the God kind of faith, the God kind of faith in the beginning, in the creation of the world, was put in practice. That faith was exercised by God himself through the words that he spoke. Through the words that he spoke. Now, folks, we think of faith as being in a position where God has given us authority on the earth, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God gave us authority on the earth, gave mankind authority on the earth. And so we speak the word of God as the Bible instructs us in exercising our authority here on the earth. But we know that there's somebody over us. We know that there's somebody that we're looking to to watch over his word to perform it. There wasn't anybody over God. Wasn't then, isn't now. So it's not like God's using faith in the same way that we use faith when we have the ultimate backup system of God watching over his word to make it good. Well, how does it work for God? Well, the only way it could possibly work for God is that his word carries such power and is truth and is no lie that whatever he said comes to pass. See, the reason it's impossible for God to lie is because if he said something that we would consider to be a lie, it would all of a sudden become the truth. His word cannot fail. And so if he spoke something that was a lie, the lie would then become the truth, and the truth would change into a lie itself. That's enough to make our minds go tilt, I think. But for God and for our understanding of God, it comes down to the power in his word. His power is his word. Paul said something to that effect in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, the gospel of Christ is the word of God, isn't it? The Bible says, Peter tells us that we're born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. So the gospel has to be the word itself. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ or the word of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation. That word salvation is the word sozo in the Greek. It's an all-inclusive term that means rescue, deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. So he said, the gospel of Christ, or the word of God, is the power of God unto salvation, is to un unto rescue, unto deliverance, unto soundness, unto healing and health. All those things that were included in Jesus' work, sacrificial work for us on the cross. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Then he goes on to say, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, because the Bible says, the just shall live by faith. Now, when Jesus says, talks about faith, 
Jesus emphasizes in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, as we said before, he emphasizes the word that's spoken. So Jesus' definition of the God kind of faith is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. So if the just shall live by faith, that has to meet this definition too. The just shall live by believing in his heart and speaking with his mouth. The just shall live, in other words, by speaking or confessing God's word. By speaking or confessing God's word. Now, folks, this thing called faith, which you can certainly make the argument is the most important subject in the Bible. For example, you can't get saved by, by, without faith any, any other way other than by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God. Well, if the new birth or being born again is the most important part of our eternity, and faith is the means whereby that eternity is secured, then faith has to be of great importance, doesn't it? You can't please God by faith, as we quoted Hebrews eleven six just a little bit ago. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Well, we want to be pleasing unto our Heavenly Father, don't we? You can't do that other than by faith. So this all-important subject of faith is the step where you change from being a nominal Christian to being a radical one. I've never met a radical Christian yet that was not impressed and focused on the operation of faith. Now, I know a lot of times it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get caught up in different things in our lives. And as a result, most Christians, certainly the majority, I don't know what percentage to attach to it, but certainly the majority of Christians are going through life hoping that God works things out. But there are very few people that are living that kind of existence that really have a first-hand knowledge or exposure to the Word of God to the degree that they believe that faith will change things in their favor. I mean, for example, who in the world is going to take the position and say, well, I believe the Word of God will heal the incurable diseases coming against my body, but I really just don't have time for that right now. Who does that? But instead, you see a lot of people that are grabbing at straws, so to speak, because they haven't been taught. And that's the fault of the church. It's not their fault. But the fault of the church is we haven't talked about and spoken on the subject of faith to such a degree that people really get down on the inside of them, get down in their hearts, their spirits. The incredible possibilities of this thing called faith when it's put in practice. We know that God expected Joshua to be a radical follower. He couldn't be a Christian because Jesus, had, Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross. But God expected Joshua to radically follow him. And he told him how to do it. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. He said, this book of the law, meaning the word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth. Notice there's the emphasis on speaking again. It shall not depart out of your mouth. 
But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, a lot of times people will kick against the idea of God wanting us to prosper. Well, if he didn't want us to prosper, why did he put Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 in there to show us how? Been real easy to keep us in the dark. Just don't tell us the answer or the way to victory or the way to prosperity. And prosperity is, in its simplest terms, success in life. Now, folks, this is one thing that the Jews understand. And again, let's use the example of the monetary system. The Jews understand, because of the religious training that they receive as children, and obviously there are secular Jews and nominal Jews just like there are nominal Christians, but it's very much a part of the Jewish existence to grow up learning that this earth is here to serve mankind. You're not going to find many Jews caught up in the global warming climate change stuff. Because they know that the earth is here for them. Might be a good idea for us to find out the same thing for us. So they understand that the earth is supposed to produce for them. As being God's chosen people. They understand from their history. That the earth is supposed to produce for them. In a much greater manner or measure. Than it will produce for anybody else. And that's what's known as, or at least a part of it, is known as the blessing of Abraham. Well, that blessing doesn't just belong to the natural Jews today. The Bible says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Verse 14 tells us why. That, or so that, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. So that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. And that we might receive the promise of the Holy Ghost. Here's this thing called faith again. Here's this thing that Jesus used to change the circumstances that were facing him. Told to us, spoken to us, written to us. That we might know. That the things of God have altered the old covenant to include us as believers and children of God. The Jews know the earth is supposed to provide for them. And it becomes an inherent thing. In other words, they accept it so completely that they expect their businesses to work supernaturally and provide for them. In a supernatural way. They don't even have to know why. They don't even have to magnify God. For the, for the results that come. They just simply act. In belief. According to the history. That they've been taught. And where they come from. I wonder how faith would work. If we just took it at face value. And just accepted it to be true. And went forward. See, the Jews don't come to you and say, why isn't this prosperity stuff working? They just start another business. But look at all the Christians that come and say, why isn't my faith working for my healing or whatever else they're applying it to? 
there's not a general acceptance. And again, I put this fault on the fault of the ministry. If the church had done the job teaching the body of Christ, who we are and what belongs to us, and how to exercise faith, how to use the word for your benefit, if the church had done its job teaching the people, then there wouldn't be such widespread confusion among the children of God worldwide. Well, the only way I know to remedy that is to double down on the teaching now. So Jesus said, Whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, folks, if Jesus is speaking for God on behalf of God, which we certainly believe that he is, if Jesus ever said or spoke anything other than speaking for God, that would have been a lie and a sin. So Jesus has to be absolutely truthful in everything that he said to be a worthy sacrifice for you and me, right? So if Jesus is saying, he shall have whatsoever he saith, now there's some qualifiers there, and that is not doubt in your heart, and that simply comes down to not speaking contrary to God's word. Doubt in the heart is saying or speaking contrary to what God said. You remember the 12 spies that went into Israel. Ten of them came back with an evil report saying, we are not able to take the land. Well, God said the land was already theirs. They said, not so. We can't take it. The people are stronger than we are. And we are in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we are in their sight. What was the evil report that they brought? They said, we can't do what God said we can. They said, we can't have what God said is ours. That's doubt of the heart. Now, what caused them to speak those words? The things that they saw in the promised land. The strength of the people and the size of the walls around the city. They allowed circumstances to determine what they would and would not accept to be true. In other words, they got high-minded about the people in the land of Canaan. They thought more highly of the people of the land of Canaan than they thought of God and his promise to bring them into the promised land. That's high-mindedness, folks. Saying that you can't do something is calling God a liar when he said you can't. Now, we don't think of it in those terms. Nobody would think to call God a liar, but that's exactly what it is. If God says, by his stripes you were healed, talking about Jesus and his work on the cross, then for us to say that we're not is taking sides against God and against his word. It's calling God a liar. Now, again, people get hung up, but what about the circumstances? I can't say that I'm not sick when I know that I am sick. Well, the Bible doesn't say that faith calls things that are as though they are not. Faith doesn't deny the circumstances or the physical facts. Faith just takes a greater truth and changes the facts as they are presented. Faith says because of what Jesus did, I'm healed. Not because I look healed, not because I feel healed, not because I feel well. Whether I feel good or feel bad doesn't really matter. 
God's word says we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. You're going to have to decide what to do with that. You're going to have to decide whether you're going to accept God's word to be true no matter what you see and feel around you. Or are you going to do like the ten spies that said, I know God told us that he'd be with us and he'd bring us into the land, but the people are too strong. We can't do it. Now, these are the things, as I said, I believe this is the first step into becoming a radical Christian. Now, many people may not like the word radical. And by that term, I just simply mean believe God and serve him instead of anything or anyone else. So we might put it in different terms, if you're more comfortable with these. We might say that the subject of faith, embracing the subject of faith, embracing the word of God to speak it into our lives, is the first step to becoming a strong Christian. I don't believe you can be strong in Christ without being radical. But that might be up for debate. We might find somebody that is absolutely committed and totally committed to preaching in the good news of Jesus and talking about salvation, which the modern-day church seems to think salvation is synonymous with forgiveness of sins. Salvation is inclusive of forgiveness of sins. But there's more to it than just that. But you might have somebody that's so turned on to getting people saved that they are radical about telling people preaching the gospel of Jesus dying as our sacrifice and our substitute I don't have a problem with that at all I don't have a problem with that in any way whatsoever and it's obvious that Jesus can be preached the salvation message can be preached without talking about the subject of faith because somebody doesn't have to know they are operating in faith when they simply obey what the Bible says about believing that Jesus went to the cross, God raised him from the dead, and therefore confessing him as Lord and Savior. That is operating in faith when you do what the Bible says. And you don't even have to know that it's faith that you're operating in to make Jesus the Lord of your life. But past that point, past the point where you come into the family of God, there is and should not be anything more important for the believer to know, whether it's a new believer or whether somebody's been saved for 50 years. There is not and should not be anything that's more important to them than this subject of faith. Because it's by faith that we take hold of all the things that Jesus purchased for us, not just forgiveness of sins. So I don't know how you can be a radical believer or a strong Christian without being radical on the subject of faith. How can you be a, a, a strong Christian? How can we be the people God wants us to be without living our lives, confessing and speaking what his word says about us and to us? How do you do that? I know a lot of people get hung up in this modern-day world, modern-day church, a lot of people get hung up on doctrine. Well, any doctrine that doesn't agree with what the Bible says is most important. Isn't very good doctrine to hold on to, is it? So Jesus emphasized in Mark eleven twenty three 
again, showing Peter, showing the disciples how he operated in such a supernatural way concerning the fig tree. And folks, you have to realize that the fig tree dying overnight, drying up from the roots and dying overnight, that's spectacular. That's not just supernatural. That's spectacular. Because if you took a chainsaw to the tree the day before, it might be laying on the ground, but there'd still be green leaves. It would take some period of time, maybe even a week, for the life that was already in that tree to run its course because it's been separated from the root system and in effect dead. But this thing is still standing. But I envision it, envision it as maybe an appearance looking like it got struck by lightning. That's the only physical circumstance that I can think that might have a similar effect. But even there, it probably wouldn't die completely if it was struck by lightning. But it wasn't struck by lightning. It was struck by the power of God's word. Which is greater and stronger and more effective than any lightning strike could be. Then Jesus went on to talk about faith in a different way. In Mark eleven twenty four, verse 23, he's talking about just speaking to the mountains, speaking to the problems. But then in verse 24, he said, therefore, I say unto you, in other words, because faith works by speaking, believing in your heart and speaking with your mouth. He said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So he's telling us in verse 23 that faith works by speaking the word. Verse 24, he says that faith works by praying. This God kind of faith, believing God's word and speaking the truth. This God kind of faith works in prayer. But it's a very specific type of prayer. This prayer of faith is unique and different than any other type of prayer. This prayer of faith is the prayer that believes that it receives when it prays. John said it this way when he had come to the end of his life and he wrote the letters to the churches. John was probably about 20 years old when he first started following Jesus. And he's about 95 years old when he writes the gospel that bears his name, the book of Revelation, and the letters that he sent to the churches, what we know as 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. So he's been walking with the Lord for probably 75 years, somewhere in that territory. And at the end of his life, he says it this way. He says, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Anything according to his will, he hears us. And if or since we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. In other words, John is saying the key to having an answered prayer is simple. Make sure you're praying according to God's word. Because God's word is his will. We cannot pray God's word without praying his will. And you can't pray his will without praying his word. So here John says... The key to answered prayer is to base your prayer on the word. Because you know that God will hear that. And once he's heard you, 
The answer is yours. Now compare that with what Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. What things soever you desire. Now what things is he talking about for us desiring? Well certainly things within the will of God. We shouldn't be desirous of anything outside of God's will, should we? Well, think about the things that are contained in his word. The Bible talks about total victory, absolute victory in every area of life and in every situation and circumstance. I'll settle for that, won't you? God's word speaks of success in every manner and in every way. It talks about the fact that Jesus, through his work on the cross, as a substitute and a sacrifice for us, that he destroyed all the works of the devil. Well, then being free from any and all works of the devil would have to be God's will. So when Jesus said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now we know, according to John, that if we pray according to his will, then he hears us and we have the answer that we desire. We determine what we pray according to his will by the word that's given to us. The word of God, the gospel of Christ, whatever you want to call it. So he says that that kind of prayer when we believe that we receive the things that we ask for, not when we see them, not when we feel like they're ours, but when we pray. He includes that as part of the operation of this thing called faith. So if without faith it's impossible to please God, then that would have to mean without praying the prayer of believing that we receive when we pray. Without that kind of prayer, it's impossible to please him. So in a nutshell, folks, what is it that makes God happy when we act on his word, when we use his word in prayer? God said in the Old Testament, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Well, what does he want us to put him in remembrance of? His word. Why does he want us to plead together with him? Because he wants us to be able to argue our case that his word belongs to us. One of the greatest areas of the devil's temptation is that he tries to convince people that the word of God, even though it may be true for some people, isn't true for them or won't work for them. But God expects us to take a position where we can argue our case, where we can stand against the devil when he tries to tell us that we're not worthy or this doesn't belong to us for whatever reason he uses he knows what our hot buttons are. So whatever excuse he makes in bringing that doubt to our minds, we're supposed to be strong enough in faith. We're supposed to be radical enough as Christians to turn it around and say, wait a minute. The Bible says that I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. My righteousness is of God, not of myself. So any of this stuff that you're talking to me about, Mr. Devil, about my unworthiness or whatever, if it was dependent on me and my own actions, you'd be right. But it's not. 
is dependent on what Jesus did and my faith in him. The sense of unworthiness does not make one bit of difference when the Bible says we've been made worthy by the blood of Jesus. It's amazing to me how many people will twist themselves up in mental knots trying to find a position where the word won't work or won't, doesn't belong to them. Well, Jesus came in contact with somebody that argued her case. You remember the Syrophoenician woman? Jesus came to a certain place and there was a woman that came and worshipped him and said, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil and Jesus didn't even answer her. She didn't stay quiet though because the disciples went back to Jesus saying, we can't get rid of this woman. And Jesus then answers and says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying because you're a Gentile and not a Jew, I can't help you. Now there came a point in time where the gospel went to the Gentiles after the Jews rejected it. But they weren't there yet. And so she worshipped him. She fell down before him. And instead of getting mad, instead of cursing him, or taking some position against God, she worshiped Jesus. Oh, she had to believe who he was. She had to believe he was more than just human. Because if he was just human, then the answers he gave would have indicated to her that she couldn't obtain for her daughter the healing and deliverance that she wanted. Then Jesus said it's not worthy or it's not right or meet or appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now the children he's talking about are the children of Israel. And so he's saying that healing and deliverance certainly belongs to the children of Israel. Which if it belonged to them then it belongs to us now through Christ. Because we're a part of the family of God. So if it was their bread back then it's our bread now. He said it's not right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs but she's still arguing her case she said truth Lord yet the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table and Jesus said woman great is your faith be it unto you even as you will and her daughter was healed from that hour now folks I want you to understand something one woman not even a Jew not even under the, uh, uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham. One woman changed God's timetable. One woman. We don't know how knowledgeable she was of the Old Testament or the Scriptures. The only thing we really know about this woman is she would not quit. Now that's a perfect example of somebody putting God in remembrance or pleading their case with, together with him. Jesus wasn't offended by that. He was greatly impressed by her faith. 
So here she is with not nearly the truth that we have available to us. And she argued her case before the Lord successfully in such a way that Jesus, she was one of the few people that Jesus commended for having great faith. Now, why does God want us to put him in remembrance? Why does he want us to plead together with him? Has he forgotten what he said? Is he expecting us to keep tally of what he said so that he can be reminded and say, oh, yeah, well, I forgot about that? Of course not. Well, if it's not God needing reminding on his end, then there must be something about us demonstrating before God ourselves that we understand what belongs to us and that we take a position of not accepting less than what Jesus purchased for us. See, sometimes people make excuses for things. They'll say, I want to be healed so that I can serve God. Folks, I don't want to be healed to serve God. I'm going to serve God whether I'm healed or not. Amen. I want to be healed because it's what Jesus paid for. Now, some people might consider that to be selfish. I disagree. It's self-interest, but it's not selfish. See, if it was selfish, I would want to be healed in, at the expense of anybody and everybody else. But self-interest says Jesus paid for it for a reason. He purchased it for us for a reason. So I just simply refuse to be talked out of it by the devil or anybody else. It belongs to us because Jesus paid the price for it. Folks, that kind of Christianity, that kind of stand in faith is a position of strength, not of weakness. It's demonstrating to our Heavenly Father that we know what He said in His Word and we believe it and accept it to be true. And that's the kind of faith that pleases Him. Don't ever let the devil tell you when you're standing up for your rights and privileges in Christ Jesus that you're doing something that God's displeased with. I firmly believe that those are the kind of people that Jesus looks down from heaven and says, all right, finally we found somebody. <laughs> so Jesus tells us about this thing called faith, this all-important thing called faith, the God kind of faith. That it comes down to speaking the word of God from your lips because you believe it in your heart. And in prayer... It's taking the word of God with you in prayer so that you can say, I'm praying according to your will, Father. Therefore, I believe that you hear me. Therefore, I believe I receive the answer that I seek. Not when things change, not when things look any different, but right now. Let me leave you with one final thought, and that's this. There are numerous times where Jesus talked about the impossibility of things in this life being easily crossed and easily satisfied, easily rectified by this thing called faith. For example, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'd say to the mountain, remove into the sea, and it should obey you. And then he, said, he added this statement. He said, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. 
In Mark chapter 9, when the father brought his epileptic son, demon-possessed son, to the disciples, Jesus wasn't there. He was still coming back with Peter, James, and John from the mountain of transfiguration. And so when he showed up, he saw that the scribes and the Pharisees were around the other disciples, questioning them, and that never turned out well. So Jesus walks into the middle of the group and says, what's going on? And then the father speaks up and he says, I brought my son to your disciples to cast the devil out of him. And they couldn't. And then he turns to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, help me. And Jesus answers the man, the father. And he says, oh, foolish generation. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, faithless generation. How long shall I suffer you? In other words, Jesus identifies that the Father is not, is not acting or operating in faith. Now, there had to be some reason why he brought his son to Jesus. It may have been in desperation. It may have been for any number of other reasons, but it's not in faith. At least not at the point when Jesus comes down. And Jesus responds, and the King James translation is a little difficult with this because it doesn't translate. Uh, translate sarcasm very well. But the Greek, that's, the Greek words that are used identify that Jesus asked, answered sarcastically when the Father said, if you can do anything, have mercy on, on me and help us. Jesus turns it around on him and says, if I can. In other words, he's conveying that God's ability is not the issue. Now let that sink in for a second. If God's ability is not in issue, at issue, if it's not in question, then what is the important factor? Well, Jesus finished. He went on to say, if I can, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, he turns it right back over on the, the man, the father. I see so much of the church world trying to put the responsibility over on God as to what they have or don't have, whether they're healed or not healed or whatever. But if Jesus is acting as God's representative in Mark chapter 9, which of course he had to be, then Jesus is showing us how God operates in those situations where somebody tries to throw it back over on God and say, it's up to you. Jesus says, it's not a matter of what I can do. It's a question of what you can believe. And the father finally answers and says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief I think he'd been better off by not adding that last part in it sure looks better in the in the, the the gospels if he hadn't said that but even what he did say Lord I believe what's he doing has he heard anything about Jesus in the interim between the time where he says if you can do anything have mercy on me and, and help us has anything happened to cause him to have greater faith in God's ability? Nothing has happened. Well, then where did he all of a sudden get this faith to say, I believe, even though he qualifies and says, help my unbelief? See, even the father recognizes that this is not strong faith. But what made the difference in between the verses where Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, and look it up for yourself. He's talking to the father. He's not talking to his disciples. It says, he answered him, the father, and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? 
What's happened to boost this man's faith? Nothing. Not a thing in the world. Well, what has changed? There's only one thing that's changed, folks, and that's what the father said. The father went from saying, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, to saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The only thing that changed were the words that were coming out of his mouth. Do you know the simplicity? The simple truth is this, that before the disciples, just as much as before Jesus, if the Father had said that he believed, that would have been sufficient for the power of God to deliver his son. Now some people may hear this and say, well, Sounds like Pastor Mike is saying you don't have to believe. It's not really important to believe. It's just important to say that you believe. Well, folks, what is faith if it's not a choice? See, the people that are strong in faith are the ones that have chosen to be. The people that are weak in faith are the ones that have chosen to be weak. Because remember, the, the, the ultimate principle of faith you will have what you say. The only thing that changes for the father is he begins to say, or he, he said on this one place, this one occasion, he said one time, Lord, I believe. And even though that's not great faith, it was enough for Jesus to heal his son. Jesus cast the devil out of this little boy, and he's restored back to his father. The father went from being faithless to saying, Lord, I believe. By choice. There wasn't some move of God. There wasn't some eye-opening experience from heaven where the father realized, wait a minute, this is really the son of God. Sure, I believe in him. But in fact, it was a situation where the circumstances seemed to be getting away from him completely. I'm sure Jesus didn't operate the way that he thought that he should when Jesus said, it's not a matter of what I can do, it's what you can believe. Who wants the responsibility thrown back on them in a situation like that? But that's exactly what God did. And then the story shows us that even the smallest amount of faith, and how many times did Jesus say, if you had faith, it's a grain of mustard seed? How many times is even the smallest amount of faith identified as something that's great enough to move a mountain or remove a tree. Folks, we can, by the words that we say, by feeding on God's word and by the words that come out of our mouths, we can develop our own faith into mountain-moving faith, into miracle-producing faith, into the same kind of faith that created the world in the beginning. But it's up to us. We all start off with the same measure. What we do with it is up to us entirely. We are faith children of a faith God. We are faith children of a faith God. And we can choose to do whatever we want to do with this measure of faith by feeding on God's word what God told, told Joshua and called meditating in his word. In other words, by speaking it to himself over and over and over again. Then when it comes out of our mouth, it comes out with power. 
Jesus said, have the God kind of faith. Can you imagine God ever looking at a situation and saying, well, I'm not sure if we've got enough to handle this. His word never changes. It doesn't change if our circumstances are small or great. It doesn't change if our situation looks hopeful or hopeless. Faith is the currency of heaven. We know what it is. We know how to get it. And we know how to use it. And that will make us effective and successful in every area of life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you most of all for your word. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And, Lord, you said in your word that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. Well, you said in your word that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed. You said in your word that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That's one witness. We choose to be the second witness, Father. We say that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. We say that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So therefore, Father, we come to you believing that we receive our healing in Jesus' name. We come to you believing that we are victorious in every area and every aspect of this life. We say, even as you said, that greater is the, he that is in us than he that's in the world. And Satan, we say, we have authority over you, and therefore we break your power in Jesus' name over our finances. We break your power over our bodies. We break your power over our families. We break your power over our minds because we are in Christ Jesus, accepted in the Beloved. So we lift our hands in worship to you, Father. We thank you that it's done, not because we see it or feel it, but because your word says that it is. And we rejoice in your love and your care for us. Thank you for your great mercy, Lord. Thank you that your word is true and our words come to pass. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, don't forget we're going to have the baptism in just a few minutes as soon as we can get everything ready. If you can stay to be a part of that, we...